I can't wait till we're alone Somewhere quiet on our own So that we can fall the rest of the way I know that before the night is through I'll be talking love to you Meaning every word I say Hello and welcome to this episode of Categorically Oscars. I'm Cal. And I'm Chris. And this week we have a very special guest. Uh, He's been blogging about the Oscars and particularly the Best Actress category for over a decade now on his blog Fritz and the Oscars. Um, And he also has a a few YouTube videos um, with a very extensive knowledge of of Best Actress lineups over the years. Um, and is currently doing a supporting actress tournament on Twitter as well to find out the best uh, winner in that category. Um, I am talking, of course, about Fritz of Fritz and the Oscars. Uh, welcome, Fritz. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honour. It's an honour, honestly. Um, and I guess like we we shouldn't have expected anything other than a best actress uh, category. <laughs> Uh, to talk about with you coming on the show, right? Um, yeah, it's probably a stereotype at this moment, but uh, yeah, it's just my 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 favorite category. I have a feeling that maybe I'm beginning to be focused a little bit too much on Best Actress. Maybe at some point I might change to something else, but at the moment it's still all about the ladies for me. <laughs> um, but you've chosen Best Actress 1978, can you explain why you've chosen that year in particular and how did your love affair with the Oscars begin all these years ago? Um, so yeah, for 1978, so there's a, like a trivial reason and a more sophisticated reason. The trivial reason is that I was just um, completing the ranking for myself. So I had this just all fresh in my mind. And the more sophisticated reason is that I th- think this is a very exciting lineup. I know a lot of people think this is one of the best, best actress lineups ever. You have exciting 70s actresses. You have this grand diva from the 40s making a big return. So there's just a lot going on here and just, uh, yeah, it is a very exciting category. And my love affair with the Oscars. Oh gosh, I think I always can that can pinpoint that back to West Side Story, actually. So surprisingly, I liked musicals very early on. And um, when I saw that one, I really fell in love with it. And later I found out that it won all these Oscars. So I became interested in Oscars. And Rita Moreno and Natalie Wood were basically also my introduction to actressing. Um, so basically, this movie really started it all for me. Fair enough, it's an amazing movie. Uh, okay, so let's get on to 1978. Uh, and the nominees were Ingrid Bergman in Autumn Sonata, Ellen Burstyn in Same Time Next Year, Jill Clayburgh in An Unmarried Woman, Geraldine Page in Interiors, and Jane Fonda, the winner in Coming Home. Uh, first, we've got Ingrid Bergman in Autumn Sonata. Ingrid Bergman's final of seven Oscar nominations and her final film. Um, so this was kind of a, a, a bit of a swan song 
for Ingrid, if you will. Um, was this a good way to go out? It's it's you can probably not go out on a higher note. Um, to be honest, um, I think this is totally amazing that you have this actress who already had three Oscars, who had these unbelievable peaks in the classic Hollywood era in the forties, um, to give actually her best performance at the end of her career. Um, this is really just amazing and something that should really happen more often. And it's so fantastic that she got to play this part, that she got to cooperate with um, Ingmar Bergman. Yeah. And of course, then you have uh, Liv Ullmann, um, who is just a goddess and tears up the screen like nobody else in the best possible way. So um, this movie is really an actress lover's dream come true when you have these two powerhouses going at each other. Yeah, I agree with everything, and I think it's an amazing... I didn't know it was her final film, actually, and now it just makes it all the more poignant um, and all the more brilliant, this performance coming at the end. Um, and yeah, the two Bergmans finally together. When I was in uh, film school, I was very confused by the fact that Bergman, Ingmar Bergman was married to a woman named Ingrid at this time, but it wasn't Ingrid <laughs> Bergman, and I had to keep... <laughs> keep reminding myself of that um but yeah uh i didn't remember too much of the movie from the last time i saw it so it was great to watch it again actually just this morning i rewatched it um and yeah bergman and ullman together and just basically the 40 minute conversation scene um it's real i love this era of bergman of ingmar bergman's career when he really became interested in the theater and his films became so much more theatrical in their aesthetic and in their staging um and i think it really pays off here um everything but it doesn't feel stagey uh it really still feels got that naturalistic uh approach to it even when the actresses have their monologues um yeah i, I totally agree the, the movie is kind of has this kind of simple look and and simple story but it's never boring or slow so, and i would really say this is one of the most tense movies i ever saw i just think when we as you already mentioned this big dialogue uh, this big conversation they have in the middle of the night is just so it really grips you and and, and yeah just totally devastating and it really makes you feel like you are glued to the screen and you cannot look away but it's so uncomfortable at the same time and both actresses are so amazing in in these moments. Yeah, I think like often with with Bergman's films, Ingmar Bergman that is, um, they kind of slowly build um, to emotional monologues. But I feel like it's always sort of the emotion is always quite charged in Autumn Sonata, like from the very beginning. Um, like as soon as Charlotte arrives, there's this tension and. Um, Ing uh, Ingrid's given this monologue to perform about nursing Leonardo, who is it her lover? I wasn't entirely sure about that. Um, but yeah, nursing him through his final days. And like, this is 10 minutes in and you think, my God, this, this actress is incredible. But as the film goes on, you kind of realise that in a way that particular speech was an act on behalf of Charlotte. Yeah. Um, 
whereas the 40 minute exchange in the middle of the night you can see her actually cracking um earlier she'd been kind of performing for a daughter and playing sort of the the victim a little bit yeah i find it interesting that, that charlotte is that conceited and unable to give herself up to to true emotional honesty a lot of the time and that kind of facade being worn away in certain parts yeah totally agree about the monologue what i find so so fascinating is that as you said she arrives and she immediately goes into this long story we don't really know anything about her at this moment but she immediately has to tell the story and i think this is extremely difficult without this without having been kind of introduced previously by her so so that she got the chance to introduce the character herself we only know about her by what her daughter is saying but she really nails this moment and and, and i agree that What's so great about Ingrid Bergman's performance is that you never really know where she's going with it. So personally, for example, I don't think that it, she's putting on an act there. I think she really sees herself as this victim. And I think she also has this caring relationship with other people, but is just just not with her own family. So I have this feeling that she's a very different person depending on where she who she is with and for some reason she never really built a connection with her with either of her daughters but probably always more with um, people who are part of her artistic world and who probably more fulfilled her and she probably is a very egoistic person who just never really felt the need to develop this relationship with them yeah and obviously there are some some kind of similarities between Charlotte and, and Bergman with um, the whole situation in the 40s where she she kind of went off with Roberto Rossellini and, and left her daughter and left her, her husband um, and built a, a brand new life in Italy, you know, um, which, which kind of led to, to Hollywood shunning her uh, for a while until she eventually uh, had that comeback win for Anastasia. Um, but I, I did kind of wonder whether her own mistakes as a parent maybe factored into this a little bit. But it's uh, for me, it's certainly her best performance, along with Casablanca, I would say, but in a completely different way. Yeah, I, I agree that I was also think this this is her her best the best performance of her career, and yeah, she. she simply handling all these different tasks, having also these scenes where she's talking to herself, which I think is a lot more tricky than it looks like. And you just sense that she is this actress with this more classic Hollywood background, but still uses a very modern acting technique to bring this character to life. So you see this in all these close-ups during the night when you... You just sense all the experience that she has as an actress and that she really puts into use for this very challenging character. Yeah, I was going to um, bring up the bits where she's talking to herself and thinking that is Ingmar Bergman the only director that can really make that believable? Because I always buy it in his films when the characters talk to themselves like that. Whereas any other film, that would seem so ridiculously expositional and unrealistic. But watching, and maybe it's a combination of him and Ingrid Bergman. But when she's doing it, it's like, yep, yeah, this is how 
she would carry on a conversation with herself. It's totally in character and it's believable. I don't know why. I, I buy it from them, but not from too many other directors or actors. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Also because she does it in such a casual way. So she, mm. it's like she was talking with somebody else, probably like maybe like you would talk to yourself if you, if you did it a lot of times. But um, yeah, I also totally buy it. I think it's interesting that like in this movie, it's set in a very, very short period of time. Um, and yet there are so many issues and, you know, an element of catharsis. Um, I do kind of wonder whether it would feel a bit more valuable if they strung it out a little bit before she kind of lets Eva down. Um, I feel like we're never given an opportunity to like her at all. Um, whereas I think being let down might have made those feelings feel a bit stronger towards the end. Because the end scene in the train does sort of leave a bit of a sour note in the sense that it feels like this person hasn't really learned much at all from this experience. Yeah. To be honest, I don't think that she did. I think this is probably kind of this, this depressive note that comes from, from Ingmar Bergman's movies. Um, I think that she heard what her daughter said, that she at this moment it affected her. But I don't think that she will really take it home with her. Just like when she is seeing her other daughter... Um, who she so clearly doesn't does not want to have anything to do with. You have when she talks to her and has the scene opposite her. She is very nice and small talk, but you don't get the feeling that she really is interested in her or visits the room again at some point. I mean, um, Ava doesn't maybe doesn't change much either because it ends with her writing her mother a letter apologizing for everything. <laughs> So just kind of like getting that catharsis out and then immediately saying, oh, sorry, I didn't mean any of it, or or I shouldn't have said it, I guess, more accurately. Um, so yeah, both of them just kind of regress as soon as they're out of each other's sight. Yeah, and I mean, probably from Eva's point of view, it's probably just keeping contact to her mother in some way. I mean, you get the, we get the... the the idea is that they don't really spend a lot of time together. So I think during this whole period when Eva had her son and her son died, he became a little boy and then he died, that Charlotte was never once there to visit them. I don't think that she ever saw him in person. Mm. So um, I think I think what's so intriguing about the character of Charlotte is that Ingrid Bergman is such a lovable performer and that she plays this niceness very well and that you get the sense how I don't want to say evil but how um, um, difficult she really is as a real person you, you get all this from all the actions that are mentioned or, or things that she talks about like putting her daughter in a home never not even coming to the funeral of her grandchild and things like this so you really have to pick all these things up because you don't really get it from Ingrid Bergman's performance but I think this is this is actually very good. I wanted to mention a particular technique um, that reminded me of Persona, the, the scene in Persona where the scene's repeated. Um, but I loved that when you see Ava and Charlotte playing the same musical piece and the reactions of both of them to the other playing. Um, and particularly Ava 
looking at, at Charlotte playing this music and kind of thinking, you know, I wish she could have put as much love and and um, emotion into her family as she did into this, you know. I just really, really liked that scene and I liked Ullman's, the way Ullman reacted to that music. Yeah, totally. This is, um, again, one of, again, like like their conversation at night, it's such a tense scene because you're never really sure what both are thinking and what both are up to and, and really want to say but don't say. And there's so much just in their in their looks and, and their body language and, yeah, just always extremely tense every moment that they are together. Yeah, I mean, if they could reconcile after that, they could reconcile after anything, honestly, because some of the some yeah. of the things flying yeah. around are, you know, pretty heavy. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, it's I think it's easy to always sympathize with Eva, but I mean, she comes to the point where she basically blames her mother for for um, for this for the illness of uh, for her other daughter. So the, the, there comes really a point where you think, wow, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that was the point where I kind of just kind of leaned back and was looking at Eva and like, really? I, I think I get that you're hurting and this is all kind of the dam is bursting, but I think you might have gone a little too far with that one. This year, um, it won a lot of um, foreign language film awards, like it won the Golden Globe and it came close to winning the New York Film Critics and etc. But it wasn't Sweden's submission to the Academy, and in fact, this year they did not submit a film for consideration for foreign language film, and I was wondering if either of you um, knew or could guess as to why this film, or any film, I guess, from Sweden was not uh, submitted. So I don't know why Sweden didn't submit a movie. I, I, I think, so don't quote me on this because I'm not 100% sure, but I think the movie was very much financed um, from Germany and I think mm. that's why it's some reason not technically a Swedish movie uh-huh. okay. I think also I think at this period Bergman was um, went into exile because he was being investigated by the Swedish tax authorities um, so he was probably not in great standing with the country at this period mm. Yeah, that probably as well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so next we've got Ellen Burstyn in Same Time Next Year, her fourth of six nominations. Um, shall we begin with the theme song? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I finally managed to get that out of my head. <laughs> <laughs> the Oscar-nominated theme song, I like. Yeah. Yeah, we can also talk about the Oscar-nominated cinematography. <laughs> oh yeah, all those all those brilliant shots of motel room furniture. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know that that song. I, to be honest, I don't have it in my head right now, which is a good thing. But I know it's uh, it's one of those. It's this cheesy man-woman seventies ballad, and uh. yeah. And I mean, I Paul McCartney apparently was originally. Um, approach to do it and he uh, I listened to his same time next year and honestly it's not any better than this so I guess they were between a rock and a hard place <laughs> but it does like compound how old fashioned the film is overall and um, 
I don't know if it's because of things like a touch of class that had happened a few years before and it was trying to jump on the, the back of this sort of sex comedy, stagey... Um, I think it's the, the most Neil Simon movie that Neil Simon didn't write. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, at the beginning, you do kind of wonder what there is to connect George and Doris in the first place, like to, you know, instigate this like annual arrangement that they've got going. Um, like he says he loves her after they sleep together. Like, I mean, the sex must have been unbelievable. That's all I've got to say, because the things they don't, they say to each other don't add up to that. Yeah. And she's such a, such a timid housewife. So I wonder if the sex is really that amazing, but who knows? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, part of the dialogue reveals that the sex wasn't that amazing, at least not for her, right? Uh, because he gets very insecure when she won't, you know, lavish praises on him. But yeah, I know it, it doesn't establish them as a couple at all that would say, yes, let's definitely meet same time next year until we're dead. It doesn't do the legwork. So the rest of the scenes just kind of play out as a a weird, disconnected um, parade of episodes with kind of just different people being played by the same actors. Uh, they they jump too much and they explain too much just in the dialogue. Like, oh yeah, I'm like this now because of this, this, and this that happened. And it just doesn't come across as natural or believable. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, for me, there's so much wrong with this movie. Um if you say Autumn Sonata is not stagey, then same time next year is unbelievably stagey simply by the dialogue. I mean, no, no one talks like this, like these two talk. As I said, it's Neil Simon level. I can't imagine. I mean, this was somehow a very popular and successful Broadway play. I can see this working on the stage and. Uh, maybe then this this whole different character thing works better but personally i think these five-year time jumps for me personally they never work because you always think okay but they see each other all the time when we don't see them so these big changes that they have all the time they always happen between the fourth and the fifth year and and I mean, there are so many movies from the 70s, the sex comedies with adulteries and stuff like this. And somehow Same Time Next Year is one of the only movies where it really bothers me. I think somehow because they are constantly talking about their husband and wife. And at the end, she's like, when his wife dies, she's like, oh, I feel like I lost my best friend. And I think, well, her husband cheated on her with you for like 25 years. So I don't know. I don't know if she feels the same. <laughs> And, yeah. and, I, and I don't know. I mean, at the end, he even tries to use the death of his wife to somehow guilt her into marrying him. I don't know. I think there's... I, that was disgraceful. That really was. I, and the fact that, yeah. that she didn't seem bothered was even worse, you know? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, if she can get over him voting for McGovern, I guess that's just a tiny bump in the road. <laughs> Who is McGovern? I didn't get that. I, I'm guessing he's a Republican... Uh, he he was a segregationist, uh, very very regressionist politician in the sixties. Yeah, he was a 
not a nice guy, to put it that way. Mm. Yeah, I think he said he voted for him because his son died in Vietnam or something like this. So this was, yeah, yeah. but overall... I, I didn't yeah. really get... Yeah, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense either because McGovern didn't want to end the war in Vietnam, or at least I guess he was, he was very hawkish. Like So I guess the idea was that if they went in harder uh, in the war in Vietnam, they'd be successful. They probably I don't wanted know. revenge, it's, yeah. Yeah, exactly. He was actually, um, McGovern, by the way, was actually a Democrat. Uh, and back when the Democratic Party still had kind of a uh, regressionist, segregationist wing. Um, and he was a big reason why we got Nixon uh, in in the White House, because uh, people hated McGovern so much. Oh, dear. I think, I mean, the first half is harmless enough. It's all mediocre uh, or sub-mediocre. But I think when the movie gets this self-important, you know, that's when it all comes crashing down. And it's like what you said earlier, Chris, about it's like they're playing different characters when the movie skips forward, you know? Um, and I think Burstyn, at the beginning, is is obviously playing Doris as this sort of faintly stupid housewife who it, it takes forever for her to get the joke. Um, whereas he's really quick-witted. Um, and I'm thinking, you know, okay, she's going for this sheltered uh, small-town woman thing. Um, but the, as the film lurches forward in, in really big chunks, I think she gets really inconsistent, more inconsistent than him. You know, I think at the five-year anniversary when she's shaming him at the airport, and she has this big dramatic speech about wanting to call him and her feelings for him are spilling over into her personal life. I just didn't believe her. And I, I couldn't reconcile this woman with the woman of five years earlier. You know, people do change, but I felt like it was a massive shift and a massive tonal shift for the film as well. Yeah, I, I I just think probably the reason, I mean, I know Ellen Burstyn won a Tony and she obviously had this Oscar nomination and that's probably because she goes through all these changes. So she basically every chapter of the movie, she gets to play a different version of her character while the, the leading actor more or less always has the kind of same um, performance. But personally, I always think that his role is far more interesting. He's definitely I think better. He has this, uh, older. Yeah, I, th I think he has this more. I think he has this m more like dramatic arc that's more feels more consistent. But again, I can see why when you watch the movie, you think, "Oh, Ellen Burstyn, she's this housewife, then she's a hippie, then she's an entrepreneur. What can she do?" Um, <laughs> yeah, I think this is. So I think you probably I can see why people leave the movie or leave the play and and talking about her, but it always surprises me that I think the the lead actor from the play was not nominated for a Tony. Ellen Elder was I mean I would not have nominated Ellen Elder for an Oscar, but I suppose if they had a, a better actor or somebody who gave more depth to this role, I think he probably wouldn't have been nominated either. It somehow thing it somehow that the female part in this play is always the one that gets more attention. And I don't know really. I, I understand it, but I don't really agree with it. I think, yeah, Ellen Burstein originated the role, right? And I think Charles Grodin was actually 
the original George on the on the stage, and I really would have loved to see him in the movie, um, simply because I think he's just a better actor than Alan Alda, and uh, I would have enjoyed his interpretation of George um, more. I think. Yeah, I think I would also have liked to see some someone in in this part. I just think um, when you look at these sex comedies, like you, you mentioned, a touch of class. I mean, Glenda Jackson wins an Oscar and George Siegel isn't even nominated. Or later you have Gwyneth Paltrow wins an Oscar for Shakespeare Love and Joseph Fiennes is not nominated. It seems that women fare better in this kind of genre. Yeah, they like the leading men to be strong and dramatic and mostly play real people. Um, <laughs> mm. One thing it does... I mean, it does get across the fact that when people get older, they do either have to move with the times or kind of rally against them or resist them, you know, it's societal changes. But it's just, I think that's fine to say that. Um, and that's what makes his character a little bit more interesting. But it's just the way that it's illustrated is so simplistic. And when he opens the door and she's dressed as the hippie, I mean, come on, that was just the worst of it. I thought, no. I thought, really, we're going here? Ellen Burstyn is obviously a great actress, but I think she, for me, is the prime example why we should stop always going crazy when a comedic actor gives a dramatic performance and everybody's like, oh, he can do that too. I think we should pay much more attention when dramatic actors give comedic performances and succeed at it because... For me, Ellen Burstyn is a great dramatic actress, but she has zero flair for comedy, in my opinion. They do have chemistry, though, right? Chemistry? Yeah, I suppose they do. A little bit. They, they, they have chemistry, yeah, but especially at the beginning, when she, when she is this, this housewife, I think she has. there are so many lines that could work as funny jokes. And I imagine, for example, a Barbara Streisand um, from, from What's Up, Dog, and going through these lines and giving being a bit sassy and being a bit funny but she is so bored almost at the beginning and so slow and so she has these kind of jokes like i don't know what what an elder says something that he made out with a girl at the back of his car and some other car hit them and she says oh you didn't have insurance i mean it it is a stupid joke but you could make it work it's in some way but she is so bored and so yeah, that uh, I th- I think she's better in the later drama in the dramatic half because that's more her her what she does best. But I think she ups- she has no flair for comedy. Yeah, it's I, I think actually she's she's fairly good in uh, the older uh, the kind of the two older segments that they have. I could kind of believe her as a businesswoman, but as in terms of rattling off one liners, I don't think she's much good at that. Yeah, I also think the, the the part when she's the businesswoman, uh, I just think she's the wait, she's the, the 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 hippie, and after that, I think she is the yeah beginning with her business, and then the next time she is more experienced with her business, right? So let me mix it up. But I think these these parts are better. Yeah, I mean, I have to, like I have to say though, it's for these people. I mean, fair enough. The wife eventually finds out. But we're talking about 20-odd years before she finds out. He's going to the same place. <laughs> like, every every few days in a calendar year, he's not with her. 
I just... And you didn't twig? <laughs> You're not, like, twigging there's something going on here? Like, 20 years it takes yeah. her to find out. Yeah. I mean, you know, conferences or... what? I mean, what was his... I can't even remember what his original purpose in being there was. I think he was at a conference, and I think she was in some kind of monastery or something like this for med- meditating, or I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> didn't really matter. <laughs> I mean, the, I mean, the ho- the hotel was nice. I give them that. Had a nice view. Yeah, so maybe that's what his wife thought. You know, man, he he showed me some of the Polaroids of that view. <laughs> I can understand it. You know what would have been good if, in one of the segments, the wife had come in and wanted to surprise him. Mm. So she's come to the hotel. That would have been interesting. Yeah, and it's it's almost impossible to believe that that would never have happened. Um, at some point, yeah, you know, like, oh, you know, another year, another going to this motel. Sorry, honey. And she would obviously think, <laughs> you know what, this year I'm going to make it a happy occasion and I'm going to surprise him. Yeah, that would have been would have been a good scene and good comedy potential, but no. Oh, well. Yeah. But I mean, at, this, at the same time, he, he tells such bullshit, crazy stories about her that I wonder if there's any way to make this bring this character to life as a real person. I mean, he tells stories about her where she's peeing on the carpet and I don't know what what she... That was so weird. Was, I think there was one scene where he talk, talked about that she laughed so hard for some reason that she started peeing on the carpet or something yeah. like this. And I don't know. And that's why um, Doris really liked her. Doris is like, oh, I love Helen. Well, I'm sorry you sleep with her husband, honey. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would like to see somebody try to make this remake this movie in real time, like a like a Richard Linklater esque approach, where every five years they come together <laughs> with the same actors and they make it over a twenty five year period. I would watch that, um, and that might inject some more um, some more realistic elements to it and make it a little more dramatically pleasing. Um, but th- that's the only way I think you could make this work as a film. Uh, okay, so next we've got Jill Clayberg in An Unmarried Woman, her first of two nominations in a row. Um, what did you guys think of An Unmarried Woman? Um, I, I like it in general. Um, of course, it's a very um, privileged white woman has problems movie, but... Uh, I think it's the best kind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I got another one coming up. Uh, I think this just um, is necessary probably in this case to just focus on her regaining the power over her life and, and, and her, probably also her mental state. If you, if you, if you would include things like, Oh, now she doesn't know how to pay her bills or stuff like this. It would, it would be a different movie. It would maybe be a better movie, but it would not be the kind of movie they wanted to make. So it's there probably yeah, some problems in this area, but in in general, I really like it. And my main reason why I like it is um, just Jill Clayburgh. But before we go to her, what, what what do you think about the movie? Well, I think I agree that yes, this is a privileged woman, and some of her problems are kind of yeah hashtag white people problems. Um, but 
compared with the movie we're going to discuss next, I think that I can view it more favorably. Um, and this, yeah, I liked that it focused on her kind of self-actualization, which, like you say, wouldn't have been possible if she had more kind of economic uh, problems to worry about. So in that sense, I think it served the theme better that, yes, she was materially okay, but existentially she had to find herself. And I think in in that respect, it's very well done. And yes, Jill Clayburgh is uh, just phenomenal in the role and really makes you care so much about this uh yes this privileged woman's uh journey that some people would find enviable even yeah she's she's great and i really like the film actually i think i really like paul mazursky's in this period delving into this sort of relationship ethos you know, after Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, this is kind of a bit more of an extreme era for the the institution of marriage is pretty much on its knees, you know. All these um, couples are divorcing because the men are marrying women half their age. Um, but I like that this is squarely put in the perspective of the woman and um, it's very much calling out the double standards of, of an older man going out with a younger woman whereas older women are maybe seen as a little bit desperate if they're going out with a younger guy. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that that's still a thing, which is kind of sad. Um, But I really think that Mazursky's observations about relationships are very spot on in this. Yeah, I also um, agree with this, that it's uh, an interesting take on this this subject. I like it that, uh, that the divorce comes so out of the blue, for her, at least. I mean, again, you wonder a little bit, um, like maybe in the same time next year, why did, was there really no way for her to notice this? Um, but I guess there is some way for him to have this affair, um, without her noticing it if he's constantly so busy with work or stuff. And it's just like the slow progress it takes to show her development and how she gets herself out of the situation again the movie is probably a product of its time that it was but i think probably important at a time and when you think would such a movie be made today that just focuses on a woman and how after her divorce she picks herself up again so i'm really glad that there there was a time when such movies were made and gave actresses also these fantastic parts yeah, well, if it got made today, it would be like a Judd Apatow kind of comedy where she meets, you know, meets <laughs> a younger dude and gets a friend, yeah, and beca- and finds the quote-unquote true love of her life. And that's another thing I love about this film is it doesn't do that. It doesn't mean like, oh, now she just needs to find the right man and everything will be okay. No, she she may find a man, maybe it'll work out with, um alan bates but that's not what's going to get her through and i like that the film didn't go down that road like i think they would in if it was made today yeah it's a very positive message it's sending that she doesn't need a man um you could even think you know because alan bates i think is lovely in the film um, and the character comes across very well and you sort of think you know is she a little bit silly not to go with him but, you know, this is 
the answer when you come out of a relationship is not to jump into the next relationship, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so this feels like kind of, kind of an in-between solution. It was open-ended. It didn't kill the relationship. It just left it sort of there, which I liked. Yeah, yeah. I also love that, that Ellen Bates is basically this perfect guy, but that's not her main priority. So even if he's perfect, she wants to find a way for him to fit into her life and not for herself to fit into his life. And this is, I really like that. Yeah. And she already got her like one night stand to get back in the game relationship out of the way with Charlie. (laughs) So we know that that's not what this is. This has a chance of being real. I do think Charlie was a bit more dishy than Alan Bates, actually, I have to say. I think she did well there um, on the rebound. Um, But (laughs) like one thing I'm going to say against Clayberg, but I do really like her overall in, in the film, is that I don't like the reaction. Uh, to a husband leaving her. Um, I don't like the gaped stare, the frozen gaped stare. To me, it felt misjudged and only brought anger to that scene Um, and kind of a comedic anger that I thought was a little odd and didn't sit well with me. But I like when she, the scene when she's walking away and then later at the bar, you get a lot more and the inner turmoil comes through. Um, but I didn't think that that reaction worked um, in that moment. But but there's also a reaction later on that she's really better at, which is where he tells her that he's going to marry the new girlfriend. Um, and you can really see that she's holding back her dismay. And it's a much more intimate reaction than just the scowl she gave earlier. So I, I preferred that one to the initial shock and surprise. That's always interesting how how you people react differently to to acting because for me this her reaction to when he says that he leaves her is perfect, but uh, yeah it just shows how how everyone reacts differently. Um, overall, the funny thing is I can never say too much about her performance because I don't think it, she really has these a lot of these big moments that you talk about. But this is this is such a lived in and natural and organic performance that I'm always completely speechless at the end. I think she's absolutely perfect. She is amazing, fantastic. Um, For me, this is really one of those performances where you watch an actor and really forget that they are acting. She is so into this character. She makes there such a subtle change in her. I mean, she even at the, she doesn't start as this very timid housewife like Ellen Burstyn or another nominee that we will talk about later. She already has this more sassy attitude or is very open-minded and knows her play uh, and knows what she's worth. And, and is, it's a, their marriage is a, is a relationship of equals, but she still loves him and this all works for her. And then this all this happens but she doesn't become a completely different person but you sense how it affects her and how she slowly turns into someone uh, uh, gains new strengths but without completely turning into somebody else and completely changing the character she's playing but i really think that she is doing amazing character work there but while having this great movie star aura that makes me wonder why she didn't become a bigger hit i agree um, with all that, and I love, and that's the reason I love this performance too. 
and another reason I think that this movie couldn't be made today is because we don't get movies like this anymore that are just kind of slow burning dramas where the change in the character is so subtle and we and so subtly acted and we don't get movies where the lead character doesn't have some kind of big dramatic scene to kind of show the audience or explain to the audience how they've changed. So that's another thing that I love about, well, movies from this era in particular and, and this movie um, as well. And I'm actually, I'm, I'm shocked that Mazursky got left out of the best director lineup because he really does a great job with this material um, and this, and kind of guiding the, like I said, just kind of this slow, steady development of the character throughout the film. She obviously does have some big scenes, but what I like so much is that they never feel like big scenes. So they always feel like they are really part of her character and part of the story and not just a showcase. Yeah. I, I always kind of forget that this was nominated for Best Picture just because it, it's a good, it's a really good film, but it it's kind of like a women's film and you've got some really big sort of masculine films from that year. And um, this is kind of a, a lower key um, movie that's actually really good. And it really holds up as a best picture nominee, actually. It's a little long, I would say. Um, like, I think over an hour, she's still kind of crying to the therapist. And I was thinking, come on, girl, you know, <laughs> the... Because when, cause when she finally read, you know, rediscovers herself, that's when the film gets a lot deeper for me. Um, so I feel like they maybe could have gone on to that a bit earlier. I'm also not entirely sure about the timeline of the movie because I always think at some sessions she, sa she says that she didn't have sex in, I think, two months or something like this since her husband left. And I think at this point, she already had some therapy sessions. She already tried to go on a date. Um, and I think, wow, this happening, all of this is happening really fast. So I don't know if you really, when, if you're after two months, you're already at this place where she is, but uh, I guess you have to move the plot along. But this sometimes feels a little bit weird for me. Mm. But at the same time, I mean, two months is not that long, is it? <laughs> I mean, it's she was acting like God. She's like sex starved, you know. Yeah, um, that that as well. Yeah, two <laughs> two months is not that long. Yeah, in the seventies, that was. <laughs> yeah, it's a different time. I I occasionally also sometimes when I w watched that scene, I also sometimes think, my, seriously, two months. <laughs> And I mean, she has been, I mean, she has been married for like 16 years. So, I mean, kudos to them if there was never a two months dry period. Mm. <laughs> I guess uh, also this is a rare example of a Best Actress nominee having a dig at another Best Actress nominee in, in the film itself. Like I think, or maybe not Erica, but at least um, Erica's friends are not huge fans of Jane Fonda in, in one scene. They kind of like um diss her a little bit, which I thought was kind of interesting. <laughs> but I think but I think Erica actually is I think Erica is a Jane Fonda fan because they basically say who are who is the Catherine Hepburn of our time and she she says Jane Fonda. And they say no, what are you what are you talking yeah. about? <laughs> but isn't it but isn't that always interesting how people don't think that you know, if it's in the current era, you don't think that person's a movie star necessarily. You always look back on di former eras. Um, 
in a romantic way, but not. We don't think, you know, we don't think romantically so much about Kristen Stewart or maybe people who are now sort of up and coming um, and established as Jane Fonda was then. Yeah, I think you probably need just need some time to see if that person has um, any kind of longevity, and them, and also if their movies stay relevant. Uh, shall we move on to Geraldine Page in Interiors? Um, she is in some of the movie. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> solid fifth. What did you guys think of Interiors? This is Woody Allen in, in serious mode. It's um, when I watched it years ago, I guess I had a more favorable opinion of it. I don't not like it now, but watching it now and then watching Autumn Sonata, uh, I just find myself thinking, wow, Bergman really does Bergman better than anybody else. Uh, Woody Allen tries to do Bergman, but he he just doesn't do it as well as Ingmar Bergman. Uh But he really tries. He is really trying here. Um, <laughs> trying to marry Ingmar Bergman to his kind of neurotic um, New York Jewish uh, uh, sensibilities. And sometimes it almost works. Um, like there's a lot of great shots of empty rooms that, you know, are are quite Bergman-y. But... I'm not sure it's an entirely um, happy marriage of the two styles, uh, watching it again. Um, and whenever whenever Woody Allen tries to go completely serious, his characters are just the most insufferable prigs. Mm. Uh, and that gets old for me really fast, because I don't think he does as good a job writing straight dramatic dialogue as he does just letting go with the comedy. Mm. Um I the funny thing is I always end up liking interiors. Um the movie is a little bit also like where you could wonder what's the purpose. Um be because I I don't really feel that there's really any necessity for the movie to to exist but uh, somehow I always end up liking it and I mean, one of the reasons is probably that just these kind of dark family dramas if they are done well and if the actors are Are doing it well they are just really my thing so i was a very weird child and even when i was little and played with my lego figures i, I also had them in some kind of family drama situation that they had to work out so <laughs> i don't know why i did that but um works uh, but of but of course these kind of movies are for me and i mean woody allen uh, you can say about him what you what you want but he always really gets great actors for his movie especially in this period and of course also later and there's just a great ensemble here of course we're talking at one specific performance but i really think that every member of the cast is excellent in this and great acting really for me helps me really does a, really helps me very much to overcome any kind of bored feeling I might have about a slow or bad movie from what Chris was saying it's it's difficult when you're watching all of the movies from the same year together and you're seeing that Woody Allen was nominated for best director for interiors ahead of Ingmar Bergman and you're thinking mm -hmm. uh. I when it's such a wannabe Bergman film, 
in in so many ways it feels so indebted to cries and whispers in the way that it looks in a way you know it it, I mean, it's perfectly titled because it's people shouting in rooms and um, it's a family full of creators and, and prima donnas that are, by and large, pretty detestable, to be honest. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it's, but it is, it's Bergman all over. The, the direction's very abstract and patient and the pace is slow and the story's minimalist. And I think even Pauline Kael, called it a Bergman film without the eroticism. So <laughs> it does very much feel like he's reaching a little bit. And I have to say, I'm not massive on Alan when he goes very dramatic, like September and um, another woman. I kind of, I f- they feel kind of a bit of, you know, inert as dramas. Um, but I think what he does bring to it is is the artistic people the artistic characters and sit you know representing them as neurotic and ungenerous um in this context of a family does work in a certain way uh it doesn't work in the way that you know uh ingrid bergman's pianist is a you know neurotic um unfeeling person in autumn sonata it's not on that level it but it does have a certain niche of its own um so i i couldn't help but compare it overall as just a lesser version but the acting is pretty good i i would say especially from maureen stapleton for me who was the the standout yeah, I mean, I totally agree with what you said about these um, detestable people. I mean, they are this one messed up horrible family. And I always think about this Sam Waterstone character. And I think, my God, what are you doing? You're married to this woman. This is your mother-in-law. Run. Get out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, they are all, yes, they are all so detestable, but uh, I mean, as, the acting is great, so you 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 can accept that. But ugh, I wouldn't want to know any of them in person. I mean, obviously, Marine Stapleton's character, she's an exception, but uh, all the members of the family. I mean, probably the youngest youngest daughter is probably a little bit no- probably normal, but we don't see her so much. So who knows what what's her problem? The the cokehead actress. Yeah, is, is that who? You, yeah. Yeah, I, I, in terms of Maureen Stapleton, for me, I, I do love Maggie Smith and California Sweet, but having now seen this for the first time, I may have voted for Maureen Stapleton at the time. But because as soon as she shows up, there's a different dynamic, you know, there's a different, there's somebody to care about. And she does imprint a lot of confidence and a lot of history onto um, Pearl. Um, and the way she's kind of latched on to E.G. Marshall's character. You know, she's a, a bit of a nurturer. She's basically the opposite of Geraldine Page's character. And that's clearly what he needs. And yeah. I, I, and, it, and none of the other family members seem to understand that. Maybe the men, because they're not part of the family, they're sort of the in-laws. But nobody else seems to understand that. So I kind of, when she came in and everybody else's reaction to it, sort of, I thought, gave you more information about what they were thinking, and I kind of liked that part of it. Yeah, I, I'm still I'm still in the Maggie, Maggie Smith corner, but I, I totally agree that Maureen, Maureen Stapleton brings a 
whole different level of energy into this movie. I mean, obviously her character is written that way, so she has to do that, but you still need the kind, the right actress to actually do that, so that she fits into this world, but still has this warmth. Um, and Maureen Stapleton is really great in, in this. I mean, obviously, I mean, she wears a red dress and you, everybody is, everybody is always more, uh, everybody else always seems to blend into the wallpaper. And, and she really stands out. So obviously the part helps her, but she, she, she really delivers. Personally, my favorite of the cast is, I think, Mary Beth Hurt. Um, her character is awful, but for some reason, I absolutely love her performance. This, this torn between this, that she wants to have something more in life, that she is some, just so totally unhappy with everything and, somehow everything gets her down and she really makes this believable and I really love her final monologue when she talks to her daughter um, for me that's really the, the performance of, of the best performance in the movie she was good very detestable and kind of talentless in the, the character um, just kind of trying to do whatever she can really um, but yeah I liked I liked the ensemble overall Um but to get onto Geraldine Page, for me, it's an ensemble movie. Um, so I don't really see there being a lead in this. Uh, but do you guys agree? or? Well, I agree that it's an ensemble film and she's not really the lead. But I suppose that her character is the central focus of the film. So even if she's not in it. It's all kind of about her. So I guess that could have been the justification for uh, putting her in the lead category. Yeah. I would agree with, I would agree with that if, it fe- if I felt the film got that across better. Mm. You know, I, I know she's like a, she is the catalyst for everyone else's misery, but I don't feel like the film does enough to detail that, really. I also, yeah, I also think either she's a very dominant supporting role or uh, not so dominant lead but I think her perform her performance and her character really shows that it's very difficult to make these classification and sometimes it's not only about screen time because personally I yeah I, I do think that somehow everything in the movie happens around her and it revolves around her of course you can also be a supporting character and everything revolves around you um, for me, the prime example is always Vanessa Redgrave in Julia. She has this very, she's like 15 minutes of screen time, but the whole movie just exists around her character. And so Geraldine Page can be seen as supporting, but I can also accept her as lead. What about the performance itself? Because it's kind of, it's it's quite a specific performance in the sense that it's, She's sort of on the brink of hysteria the whole time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this is this is just this is a Geraldine Page role. I mean, she she really she's this very technical actress, but she's always she really can bring this new, neurotic and eccentric nature across very well. And she in 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 interiors she has these really sharp features somehow her face looks so hard all the time you have the feeling that this woman hasn't been warm or loving in in decades 
but does of course doesn't really notice it. She has of course her in interiors. She has this very cold way of decorating places. Everything is gray and beige, and this is basically her whole. I mean, the, the symbolism is very obvious in this movie, but this is basically her whole personality. And Geraldine Page is a perfect vessel to bring this character, this very neurotic, hardened, cold personality to life. And she just has this um, on-screen personality that just naturally makes her stand out. And even in a room full of people, when you have this ensemble, she's somehow always the center of attention. It it really does her no, no favors in terms of you know the way she looks. She looks quite um, severe in this at times, um, but I do I do think that she's incredibly effective in the scenes, um, especially the one at the dinner table um, where he's saying he's going to leave, and she just sort of it's it's toppling over. It's toppling over. You know, um, I just w- I would have liked more of her, especially in the second half. It feels like she's not in it until she then goes out to sea. Yeah, I also would have liked more of her. And and I agree that every time she appears, she is incredibly effective. I mean, she always has very small scenes. Probably every scene that she appears in is like two or three minutes. And But she's always on the brinks. She's always... I think the, I, what I really like is the first scene when she appears, when she's decorating... Um, Joey's apartment and talks to Joey's husband and you get the sense that she's somehow eccentric and maybe a little bit weird and then at some point Joey says she's a sick woman and that's the first time that you think okay there's more to her behavior than you actually noticed and then you start to get the feeling for what is really happening to her and what is bottled up inside of her but she is such a cold person that all this all these feelings that are inside her, they never get out. She always just keeps them inside and gets hardened more and more. And just, yeah, I, I definitely wish there would have been much more of her, but I think every time she appears, she's really mesmerizing. All right. So all these women we've discussed so far, they lost uh, to Jane Fonda in Coming Home. It was her fourth of seven nominations and her second win. Um, and this this was pretty much the Vietnam War battle between Coming Home and The Deer Hunter uh, this year for Best Picture. And you know, Jane Fonda kind of waded into that a little bit um, after she was told by Judy Christie, who'd just seen The Deer Hunter, that the Viet Cong were presented as sadistic and subhuman. Um, and so Fonda then sort of openly campaigned against the film winning um but these are like two very very different films right like having seen the deer hunter recently as well and now watch having watched coming home this week could could halash be in michael Cimino's directorial approaches be any more different but i think coming home especially just has it just has a much more a much less patient um feel and I mean, even with, at the beginning, you've got like a six-minute credit sequence and the film's constantly got music from uh, the Stones, the Beatles, Dylan, um, Born to be Wild. There's just so much going on and I feel like the, 
the energy is a lot higher in the movie. Um, so I, I kind of liked it this time more than I ever have before. Interesting to describe coming home as having a higher energy than a film with literal Russian roulette scenes. But I think I agree. <laughs> no, yeah, the the pacing and just the kind of urgency is there with coming home throughout. Um, and I think that the approach to, yeah, you similar thematically, you know, returning veterans dealing with the fallout. But it, it highlights it much more in a kind of much more everyday, realist, like relatable way, I think. Um, whereas the deer hunter takes a much more extreme approach uh, that, you know, is a different approach. And I, I like the deer hunter a lot too. I like them both. Um, but I think uh, I'd probably give the edge to coming home just in terms of its approach to its theme and its characters. Yeah, I, I also like both movies. I think they have... I would not say that Coming Home has more energy or higher energy. I think they have a very different energy. Um, Coming Home is obviously this, this more this home front drama um, and tells a different story. I probably like The Deer Hunter better, but I also enjoy Coming Home very much. I think the fact that it does have this ongoing seven greatest hits of the 70s soundtrack and this makes it easy to, to digest and... The story is not really, I mean, there are some dark and disturbing moments, but overall it has, I don't want to say it's a feel good movie, but it, it's, I think it's more easier to approach this movie than, than the deer hunter. And by putting this, uh, the relationship between these two characters into the center and yeah, but, but, but I do like the story and, and the movie itself. Did anybody else feel that the relationship was a little sudden? Like, especially on her part. Yeah. The film was sort of setting her up as this this sort of kind of prim and proper woman um, that wanted to sort of contribute to the war effort, you know, um, and um, and really respected her husband and this, you know, this and that. And I, I just felt that her decision to transfer her feelings to Luke didn't entirely fit with the way that the character was presented in the first place. I just would have liked a little bit more of a, a gradual awakening in her. To me, it felt... To me, parts of the, you know, certain story beats in Coming Home felt abrupt in the way that they, should, they shouldn't. Yeah, I probably agree with that. I think, and this is probably also my main problem with the movie itself that I'm not a hundred percent sure that every actor really fits to their character. And and when we when we want to talk about Jane Fonda, I think Jane Fonda has such a modern and dominant screen yeah, confidence and dominant and modern screen presence. So that I really don't buy her at the beginning at all at this little wife she's supposed to be. And I think she always hold. I have the feeling that she always holds back in her performance in some way. And this is also probably my main problem with with her performance that I don't have the feeling that she really fits very well and does not really have the right style to make this believable. I also think, for example, she has this friendship with um, uh, what's it? Val is her name Val? Vi. 
um, why is right why um, I think I was thinking about the nanny probably <laughs> <laughs> um, why yeah and somehow I don't see Jane Fonda following Penelope Milford no <laughs> I think I think Sally would probably need need to be a younger actress and somehow who feels less experienced in life. And I think that Jane Fonda is trying too hard there. I agree. I agree. I think it's she's miscast, right? Yeah. Um well, I mean that's what happens I guess when uh cuz she's the one who was, you know, making the movie trying to get it made because it was her message, her big Vietnam message film. So of course she was going to be in it. She was the one behind it. Uh, but yeah, it doesn't really work as well as I think, like you're saying, a younger actress or somebody who could portray that transformation that the character's supposed to go through better. Um, because yeah, it did feel abrupt to me too. And I think they just had no choice but to do it because they couldn't really play it slow and show the transformation with Fonda in the role. Yeah, it it's a shame because John Voight is, I think, terrific in this film. I think he's absolutely wonderful. He's wonderful. he's amazing. It's yeah. sort of it's he's angry, but he's like charismatic and charming at the same time. But he's he's got real fear and trauma. It, it just it's like you were saying with Jill Clayburgh in an unmarried woman. For it's, it feels like it's actually somebody who's gone through it. You know, it's that lived in. Um, so it almost feels like he's he's suffering through what's happened to him, but it, in many ways he's rising above it as well, you know. So I was kind of sad to hear that Jane Fonda no longer talks to him, although I wouldn't talk to him either, given the situation at the minute. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's, he's, so, he's such an awful, yeah, such an awful human being. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I mean, in terms of his work in this, it, I can't fault it, to be honest. I think he was great. So I think they could have put anybody opposite him and he would have sold it. Yeah, my, my theory is that he was so great that he pulled her along with him at the awards. Yeah, I think uh, I, I read a review once that basically the men in the movie, they cho- choose between ideals and what they want to do in life, and she basically chooses between the two men. <laughs> it's yeah. not much... I mean, it's a pretty obvious choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the, the choice is obvious, but I, I just wish there would be... I, the choice is obvious. I just wish there would be more to her character. I mean, I for me, her be- scenes at the beginning of the hospital, when she, when she has this nervousness, for me, again, feels a little bit forced. I like her more when she's more relaxed in the hospital. I think my favorite scene of her is when she is um, getting the men on on their on their beds out of the bus and talks to, and, and complains about what the woman in her I don't know weird tight ass little women club uh, said. And you you sense how angry she is at them and that she that that she feels very real and very believable and i think this is my favorite moment of her always she i think she's always very good in these kind of throwaway moments that maybe are not really kind of a big deal but where she really does lay or show more of her character but is is that because fonda felt like that actually in real life and she's she's bringing her own political persona into the character in those moments you know 
which is kind of interesting because this is the most, this is kind of the most that her political persona fit her uh, cinema output. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's because of her persona. I think, I think the later scenes when she's more relaxed and Sally shows Sally as a more open and developed person. I just think that this fits her own acting style better. And I also have to say, um, even if she's probably miscast, um, I think she does have great chemistry with John Boyd. They work perfect together. Um, there is a dodgy moment. I didn't get the the whole thing with the army spying on um, Sally and Luke. I, I kind of felt like that was just a really, really silly way of manipulating the story so that Bob found out about their affair. So I, I just thought that, that was they should have just got rid of that in the script process. That, that didn't work for me. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I guess I could buy that they'd surveil him after the protest, but why why would they feel the need to tell her husband what they'd found out? That out of the goodness of their hearts, just to screw with Luke, it, it wouldn't make any sense. So, yeah, kind of... I agree, kind of a dumb plot convenience when they, there's so many other ways that it could have come out. Like, she just confesses. She'd probably do that. Why not? You know? Yeah, I think I think the second, or not the second half of the movie, but when, when her husband comes back, um, I think there's a lot they could have done better in the movie. And I think the character of her husband probably deserved more attention. And not just bring him back to kind of solve this uh, love triangle. It just kind of cop out by having him go crazy, you know. So she's it eliminates her having to do anything really, you know. He destroys himself, mm-hmm. but then that in that ending where you've got the the intercutting between Luke giving the speech, uh, warning soldiers against signing up for the Vietnam War. And then you've got kind of um, Bob running out to sea, you know, to drown himself beyond repair. I, I do think that's really quite effective. It's it's not the most um, complex ways of delivering the film's messages, but I, I found it very effective. Yeah, I also think it's effective. But coming back to Jane Fonda, I think, this again shows a little bit my problem with her role. So you have this again these these cuts between what they do, and then at the end you have her quickly entering a supermarket or something like that, because maybe there was a feeling okay we need a final scene with Jane Fonda, um, where I think her character is very passive, and when you get right down to it, apart from really this love this 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 love affair with Luke, she does not really get a lot to do. Yeah, I was confused by that, ending the movie with that shot. Um, it's like uh, Luke's giving an impassioned, like all quiet on the Western Front style speech against the war, Bob's stripping off and committing suicide, and Sally's doing the shopping. The last still is the sh- her with the shopping cart, isn't it? I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was... So weird. I mean, they could have cut that shot in earlier somewhere, 
But since it was pretty much just a back and forth between Luke and Bob up to that point, I don't understand the decision to end the the final shot of the film, her, and doing something so mundane as just opening the supermarket door and going in or out. I forget which. Yeah, I, I really wish there would have been just, there would have been more meat to the character. Because, I mean, in some way, you you have this, I mean, she's torn between her husband who's gone off to war and this other man that she met. She went to this hospital. She opens her horizon. I think there is a lot of possibility to this character, but I don't think they really use this. Okay. Okay, so we've got some listener questions this week. Um, first of which is from Zeta Short. She asks, does the glamorous idealized romance at the center of coming home end up undercutting its real message is that kind of what we were saying earlier or it it doesn't kind of feel like this is glamorized i would say that that wouldn't be the word i would use um um, um, i also wouldn't say it's glamorized but um when we come back again to the miscasting i think the movie is very imbalanced in having hunky 70 John Voight on the one side and slightly crazy Bruce Dern on the other. And I just think they, if they had cast a more conventionally attractive actor in the part of the husband and, and also, then it would have made it, I think it would have made the moral question of Sally much more interesting. But of course, yeah, but when you have the question, you have Bruce Dern who is not able to give you an orgasm and you have John Voight, who is able to give you an orgasm, so what, it's not really that difficult of a choice. <laughs> That's all it comes down to, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that just reminds me of, sorry, it just reminded me of the, I sent Callum this, this article by Nancy Dowd, the uh, screenwriter of the film, um, just a very, very bitter diatribe against the whole uh, experience. And one of the lines in it was um, that Jane Fonda turned the Vietnam War into dad's army invents the clitoral orgasm. <laughs> and, um, and that Vietnam was an old man's war fought by the young, not an opportunity for an aging Barbie to get laid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I I mean to answer the question, I think it's the message has come through regardless, um, but the the romance has missteps. I agree. Yeah, I think yeah, it it comes through, but they make it too easy. Yeah. Uh, Owen Daly asks if any of the women nominated played their co-nominees' role. Do you think they could have been more effective in the role? Fritz, what do you think? I mean, it's difficult because. I think that Ingrid Bergman, Jill Clayburgh, and Geraldine Page are all very effective. Um, I don't actually know who could play Doris effectively. Maybe Jill Clayburgh could have given it a try. And regarding um, 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 Sally, I mean, it would also have to be either Ellen Burstyn or Jill Clayburgh from from the, the age that they were. And I think they pros, both probably could have given the same performance that Jane Fonda did. Yeah. I, I was going to suggest maybe I'd like to see Jill Clayburgh and as Doris uh, of the nominees. I think she would have done an interesting job with it. Um, 
as thinking for Sally, um, I was actually uh, dipping into the supporting actress lineup and thinking maybe Diane Cannon uh, would be an interesting choice because she, uh, she's done some similar uptight housewife uh, roles in the past, so maybe she could have played it uh, a little more realistically. I also once thought if maybe Meryl Streep could have played Sally. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's a great shout. I, I, I was going to say Claire Berg as well because she she is sort of a the most comedic of this bunch of actresses. Um, so she could maybe eke a bit more out of that role in same time next year that Burston couldn't. Yeah, I don't think Jane Fonda would have been good in this. Jane Fonda did California Suite that same year, and I think she's also not really well-suited for for this kind of comedy. Uh, Rob Montoya says, I would have swapped Lisa Lucas in An Unmarried Woman over Penelope Milford in Coming Home in Supporting Actress. Uh, What are our thoughts on that? I would do that, absolutely. I think that would have been... A great nomination. Um, I would love to have seen Leslie Lucas nominated uh, for supporting actress. Lisa Lucas, sorry, um, nominated for supporting actress. I liked Penelope Melford in Coming Home, but I, I think Lisa Lucas is uh, more deserving of a nomination. Yeah, I, I agree. I would do that too. Uh, I think she really plays this this um, kind of angsty teenager very well, and I really like when they have the shouting match. She and Jill Clayberg, they never seem like two actresses waiting for the other to finish her line, but they they really feel like they're having this argument and make up their lines at this moment. Um, so I, I really would have liked to see a nomination. And, and actually, I, I read an article. She was a close runner-up at the New York Film Critics for Best Supporting Actress. So maybe if she had gotten that, maybe she would have gotten an Oscar nomination. Who knows? Interesting. I think Milford's definitely the weak link. Like, I couldn't... I don't think the film really needed her character in, in it. Um, but And I think Lisa Lucas was good, yeah. Um, but I want to shout out at something, some woman that didn't get nominated, which is Celine Lomez in The Silent Partner, which is this brilliant thriller with, with Christopher Plummer and Elliot Gould. Um, and she's really great in that. It's this sort of femme fatale style role. But yeah, definitely Lucas would have been an improvement on Milford. Um, Ronaldo Sosa asks, where would Liv Ullman rank for you if she had been nominated for Best Actress? First. Number one, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely, I, I absolutely love her. I think this is, she is out of this world. I didn't say anything about her before, but she is she re- she grabs this part and and I think these conversations that she have with Ingrid Bergman is this big confrontation scene. I always more drawn to the character who makes the accusations than the one who just takes them in. And so I think she is so quietly devastating and just in her anger and rage. But when she really breaks down in tears, this is, yeah, she would definitely be my number one. Yeah, that the scene where, well, in the middle of the nighttime conversation scene where Ingrid Bergman brings up the time she spent at home, and she's like, yeah, wasn't that lovely? And Liv Ullman just says no and just launches <laughs> into it. Oh my god, what a scene. Yes. So devastating. 
Um, yeah, the fact that Liv Ullman uh, never won an Oscar is probably one of the great, I think, top five greatest Oscar travesties. Um, and she should have been, if ever a film deserved a double lead nomination, it was this one. I can't believe she didn't get it. I always think she should have been nominated for Cries and Whispers. I think she totally steals that movie as well. Mm. And that even got a Best Picture nomination. Um, I just want to ask, did one, did one of you see... Um... Uh, what's the uh, 47 carats or i don't know what the number is but uh, also this romantic comedy that leaf ullman did no is that she got the globe nomination so. for that didn't she yeah but but there there i discovered that leaf ullman is actually another one of those um, dramatic actresses who's not really good at comedy so um i mean she's she's an, a dramatic powerhouse but again not really well suited to that so this is one time where i say okay no she didn't need to be nominated for that but when she is really in dramatic mode like in face to face then there is no one like her agreed yeah. definitely yeah i think i would i mean i'm i would shade bergman in autumn sonata so she's second for me but definitely should have gotten nominated spoiler alert on the rankings <laughs> yeah sorry um sam Meltzer uh says would you categorize pages performance as leading or supporting and academy queens also um asks how does somebody with a, a 20 minute screen time uh, and a story that isn't about her character get nominated in lead although i think we kind of think that it is about her character essentially in the sense that her character is like the catalyst and the one who brings everybody together and causes it to happen. But yeah, I think I, I think this performance kind of would have to go into lead if it's going to get nominated because it's too central to the story and the character is too dominant uh, for it to be put into supporting. Um, so if it's going to get nominated, it, I guess it makes sense to put it in lead. I don't think screen time necessarily equals lead or supporting. Um, it's more the impact on the story. Yeah, I also think if I'm if I'm forced to choose, I would also say lead. I think it's an ensemble piece, so I think everyone's supporting. Um, but that it's not egregious. It's not egregious at all. I think both both categories make absolute sense for her. Yeah. Um, Andrew Carden asks, beyond Page and Stapleton, did any of the interiors actors deserve Oscar noms? Fritz, you said Mary Beth Hurt? Yeah. I, I would not know in what category I would put her, but I mean, I don't want to, if I say who I would drop, then I also make spoilers on my ranking, but um, I could find, I could find, if I put her in Best Actress, I could find room for her and Lee Fullman. I could see her being nominated. I could also see maybe Sam Waterston for supporting actor. Um, he, you know, he's probably the best male performance in the film. Yeah, I also like, um, um, I think E.G. Marshall is his name, um, the actor who played the father. I, th I think he and Geraldine Page really are great in, in the church scene together. So I wouldn't have minded yeah. if he got a nomination. Yeah, I I think they picked the best two performances. Diane Keaton, we didn't even mention her. I thought she was pretty good, but I probably wouldn't have nominated her. Uh, so, yeah, no complaints. Uh, and lastly, question from Chauncey Talese. 
which is how quickly after the nominations did Jane Fonda realize she was going to win? Probably soon. <laughs> yeah. I guess that could bring us on, on, in, onto the um, question of why did she win this Oscar? Um, and was it close? Because she did win the Globe, which is actually technically before the Oscar nominations. So she might have had an idea before the Oscar nominations were even announced that she was going to win the Oscar. Mm-hmm. She won the Globe. She won. Yeah. I, I know Be, Be Kind Rewind made a great video about her. So I got some insight from there that she was somehow in a process of, process of re- rehabilitating herself. And yeah, I mean, the, the funny thing is that we talk about this best actress race and how amazing all these performances are. And this is maybe all time great lineup. But I think in the end, Jane Fonda probably won pretty easily. Um, she had, as you said, she had the globe, um, the critics, the critics awards, they were either won by Ingrid Bergman or by her. Um, Jill Clayburgh didn't, apart from in Cannes, didn't win anything. Um, and Jane Fonda, of course, also had, I think she had two other movies out that year and Coming Home was the biggest player in the Best Actress category as well. And I mean, her main competitions were probably Clayburgh and Bergman and Bergman already had three at this point. And I think Clayburgh somehow never really got enough steam for, for the American awards races. Which is strange, right? Because Unma- An Unmarried Woman was a, one of the top five films uh, in the Best Picture lineup, wasn't it? So it to me, it's strange that Kleberg couldn't get a little bit more traction because um, to me, it would be the natural runner-up to Fonda. Yeah, but I think uh, yeah, Ing- I think Ingrid Bergman took all the the Sunder, took most of the Sunder from in the critics awards races. So in the end, yeah, I think Fonda probably won this pretty easily. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and you know, just coming home had the biggest Oscar haul overall of the nominees. You know, picture director, all four acting categories, it just had that momentum going for it, and like. You said earlier, maybe also John Voight's success kind of made people look a little more favorably on Jane Fonda's performance. Yeah, and I think people were aware how much she was involved in getting Coming Home made. Mm. So this probably helped her as well. Uh, In terms of snubs, um, who do we think was on the outskirts of this lineup? Leave Ullman? (laughs) Yeah. And I think probably, I think Glenda Jackson had Stevie that year. She might have also been in the running. I know she won some critics award for that later. I don't know. I think the movie had different release dates in different parts of the country. So it might have worked against her. I mean, maybe Catherine Ross for the swarm, right? I mean, she must have been in the conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. I think, um, I mean, Brooke Adams in Days of Heaven is an option, which did get four nominations. And Maggie Smith um, was nominated for lead at the BAFTAs and the Golden Globes for California Suite. Um, 
but was then sort of relegated to supporting in at the Oscars. Um, so certainly some category confusion going on there. Yeah, yeah, and I know Maggie also at the New York Film Critics. Maggie also got, uh, I think, the votes in lead and not in supporting, which is a tough one, I guess, with that that film. That kind of is an ensemble as well, but Maggie Smith probably the most screen time in that one. Her and Michael Caine. Yeah, I think this is more difficult to categorize than interiors because it is an ensemble, but everyone has their own storyline. So they are not really supporting anyone in their storylines. So I think that makes it really difficult to say if it's leader supporting. Um, wider observations. We've mentioned the Deer Hunter versus Coming Home. Um, any other wins or, or standouts from 1978 that uh, either of us want to mention? Well, Maggie Smith is great. Um, I like the the, the 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 Last Dance song. Yes. <laughs> But this is this is the ultimate gay dilemma with this last dance facing off against hopelessly devoted to you. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> this, you know, and Greece being a huge hit in this year is another story. But yeah, I loved that win for last dance. Uh, you've also got Get Out Your Handkerchiefs winning best foreign language film, which is a a sex comedy about a woman having an affair with an underage boy. I haven't seen it. Hmm, okay. <laughs> Which is slightly controversial. <laughs> slightly controversial, um, but maybe it's fitting with the whole theme of 1978. And the same time next year, you'll be legal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think in, in I think in general, I mean, obviously it's the Vietnam Oscars. Um, but when you look at the best actors category, it's interesting because it's also the, the kind of broken up or troubled marriages Oscars. And you have these different women showing how you can react differently to when your marriage falls apart. You can either completely go crazy or you can pick yourself up or you can get yourself John Boyd. <laughs> if those are the only three options, I think people are doing all right. Okay, are we ready to rank these nominees? Sure. Yep. Um, so my number five is probably no surprise, Ellen Burstyn. Um, my number four is the winner, Jane Fonda in Coming Home. My number three is Geraldine Page in Interiors. And I have to say number one and two, this is really a Sophie's choice. Um, they are both excellent. I think in the end, my decision might be a little bit influenced that when you have two amazing performances it's difficult to give the win to the performance uh, to give the best actress win to a performance that i think is actually not the best actress in her own movie and so this influences me a little bit so i give ingrid bergman my runner up and make jill clayberg my winner mine is almost exactly the same i also have burst at number five uh for obvious reasons um yeah i found at number four and um page at number three and then um i do have bergman at number one uh it was equally difficult for me as well and yeah if i could show you my notebook you'd see all the scribbling out and the rewriting um <laughs> but yeah it, it, in the end i guess maybe it is um partially the fact that this was such a late career triumph and just seeing ingrid bergman working with ingmar bergman and liv allman uh, in such a great role where the two of them 
just command the screen so well. I do agree that she's number two in the movie, um, but out of these five, I had to give it to her. And again, no disrespect to Jill Clayburgh. I loved this movie and I loved her in it. And I'm so glad that we did this category so I could finally see this movie and see that. Um, I have the same ranking as Chris. I, as I kind of spoiled earlier, Bergman was my number one. Quite, I do like Clayburgh a lot uh, and Entered Unmarried Woman a lot, but it, for me it's like quite a distance between one and two. Um, but yeah, um, so we have a website, it's categoricallyoscars.com. We're on Twitter at categoricallyo. We have a Patreon, patreon.com slash categoricallyoscars. Next week uh, on our Patreon, we'll be talking about Best Original Song 1988. And the nominees were Calling You from Baghdad Cafe, Two Hearts from Buster, and Let the River Run from Working Girl. And our next regular episode will be in two weeks where we'll be talking about best art direction or best set decoration, as it was then known, of 1945, Black and White. The nominees were Blood on the Sun, Experiment Perilous, The Keys of the Kingdom, Love Letters and The Picture of Dorian Gray. Fritz, thank you so much for coming on the show. You must come on again in the future. I would love to. Thank you so much for having me and um, tolerating me always saying really or I think and stumbling along with my with my bad English. Um, it was so much was so much fun to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, we'll be back with a new episode next week and some some serious Phil Collins closure. See you then. Mm-hmm.